Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Before his massive failure with the COVID crisis, someone remarked that Donald Trump may not turn out to be the worst president we ever had, but for sure he'll be the worst person ever to be president. In many ways, Jimmy Carter is the opposite. He may not have been a very good president, but he may have been one of the best people ever to be president. It's hard to say if the problems that Carter faced, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, inflation, unemployment, and the Iranian hostage crisis might have happened to any other president of that period. But history tells us they were the crisis he was dealt, and the nature of them brought out some of Carter's worst and best quality. As the great journalist Richard Ben Kramer once so brilliantly showed us, it's really hard to get to be president. It's counterintuitive sometimes to realize that those same skills don't necessarily translate to being president. It really is a job that's about the nexus between crisis and character. Sometimes they line up and sometimes they don't. For Jimmy Carter, it was often out of sync. We're going to take a look at the Carter presidency today with my guest, Jonathan Alter. Jonathan is an award-winning historian, columnist, and documentary filmmaker. He's an MSNBC political analyst and former senior editor at Newsweek. He's the author of three New York Times bestsellers and the award-winning documentary, Breslin and Hamill. It is my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Alter back to this program to talk about his new biography of Jimmy Carter, his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, it's a delight to have you back on the program. I am thrilled to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things that's always so remarkable, it seems, about Carter, at least in terms of the popular mythology, is how successful he was in his meteoric rise to the presidency and how that didn't translate to being equally successful as president. Start by talking about that. Well, um, so this is this is a little bit, I think, misunderstood by... The general public, and I, I would say by me, Jeff, when I when I started out uh, on this project, um, this simple uh, shorthand "bad president, great ex-president" is misleading and not consistent with the historical record, as I found it, you know, in looking over five years. So, um, Carter, uh, he ran this brilliant campaign, and then he did came from nowhere to get elected in 1976. And then he did have a lot of political problems that culminated in his getting defeated for reelection by Ronald Reagan in 1980. He had problems staffing his White House. He ran into flaps. He had problems with uh, the uh, forced resignation of his uh, close friend and head of the Office of Management and Budget, a guy named Bert Lance. He, the, the press was always tripping him up, and some of the wounds were self-inflicted. Um, but what I concluded about him was that he was a political failure, but a substantive and far-sighted success. I think he was also a stylistic failure in some ways. That uh, you know, he didn't seem to be enjoying the presidency, um, and he he lost his connection at a certain point to the American people, but he actually stayed popular. He was up over 70% his first year and much more popular than Trump was never been above 50%. And even, you know, by the end of his second year as president, he, uh, 
he still was a pretty good bet to get reelected. It was in the second half of his time in office in 1979 and 80 that the roof caved in and he just got swamped by events, uh, some of them abroad in the Iranian hostage crisis, the invasion of Afghanistan by the Soviet Union and a bad economy that was made worse by the fact that he appointed Paul Volcker to be chair of the Federal Reserve and Volcker jacked up interest rates in order to kill inflation. And so they were up over 15% right when Carter was trying to run for reelection. So then, of course, inflation did end, but it wasn't until Ronald Reagan came into office that uh, that happened. So, you know, Reagan got credit for something that Carter had actually done, namely appointing Volcker. Um, So, you know, I just mentioned all of this to suggest that it's a it's a more complicated story than that he just did a belly flop in the presidency. To what extent, though, was it that the crises that came at him, not the ones that were self-inflicted, because that's a whole different part of the story, but the, the, the external crises that came at him were not ones that were ideally suited for the temperament and the methodology that he brought to the presidency? So I guess I would push back on that a little bit because the the most famous of those was the Iran hostage crisis. And um, while uh, he essentially let himself get taken hostage to a certain extent, and I'm pretty critical of him in a number of places in the book, and he, he focused too much of his attention on the hostages and it it may have cost him his presidency. And it certainly was a contributing factor. Um, at the end, on the day Ronald Reagan was inaugurated, they all came home safely. And that was as a result of Carter's passion for peace. He just saw um, military action as some, as the, the last option. So it, it ended well and they came home safely. And that was a match for Carter's temperament. If he'd had a trigger-happy temperament, he would have bombed Iran and the hostages would have been killed. Uh, So, you know, I mean, I take your point that his temperament sometimes wasn't the best. And I I wrote my first book on Franklin Roosevelt, who was described as having a a second-class intellect and a first-class temperament. And I argue that um, Jimmy Carter had a first-class intellect. He was one of the most intelligent people ever to be president and very, very complex person, which kept me fascinated, but a second-class temperament in that he he um, he had a kind of a Velcro quality to his temperament, whereas you know Reagan was described as Teflon. Carter was more Velcro. Uh, there was something about him that uh, that people um, that felt uh, opened him up to more criticism. It was almost like he had a little kick me sign on his on his rear uh, some of the time he was president. It was also the extent, and you write about this, that, that in a way his, his moralism prevented him from being as effective as he might have been, given his intelligence, as a geopolitical strategist. Talk about that. Well, um, 
you know, he wasn't that much of a geopolitical strategist. Uh, he was somebody who had what uh, one of his speechwriters, Rick Hertzberg, described as a moral ideology. Uh, and again, I see that mostly as a positive. I think his foreign policy is terribly underrated. And he had a number of major foreign policy accomplishments. And on the moral side, I would say that um, the human rights policy, which basically changed the world and paved the way for the democratic revolution that that uh, took place over the following uh, 25 years, um, <clears throat> you know, we've had some retreat from that with the authoritarians in various countries, but we still have, uh, I think, three times as many nations that are democratic as when Carter was president. Now, was that all attributable to Jimmy Carter? Of course not. But he, the, the human rights policy, as uh, Professor Carl Deutsch at Harvard wrote, is, will make Carter one of the only uh, remembered presidents a thousand years from now, because it was the first time that any nation had a policy, however hypocritical it was, you know, when they supported the Shah of Iran and Marcos in the Philippines, you know, at the peak of the Cold War, uh, not the peak, but, you know, amid the Cold War. So the policy was hypocritical. But as Professor Deutsch and others argued, and, and as I eventually argued, it, it was the first time uh, that a major power ever made how governments treat their own people part of foreign policy. And as it happened, it also hastened the end of the Cold War, uh, but with the use of soft power, as as Vaskov Havel and a number of conservatives, including Larry Eagleburger, who was ambassador to uh, Yugoslavia uh, at the time and later became a Republican secretary of state. And he, you know, at the time of the human rights policy, so what is all this moral stuff, you know? Uh, they lecture uh, Tito, uh, you know, and I leave town when they come and, you know, they hurt our relations by lecturing Tito on how he's treating his people. And then after the Carter presidency, Eagleburger admitted, you know, I was wrong. That really did a lot to help hasten the end of the Cold War. So it's a complex uh, set of issues. You know, there were some areas of his human rights policy that fell really short and that Carter himself believed fell short, especially at the end of his presidency. Um, but it was uh, an enormously important contribution, as was reestablishing diplomatic relations with China, uh, the Panama Canal Treaties that prevented a big war in Central America, and um, of course, Camp David, which uh, you know was the most durable uh, peace treaty of the post-war era. How much of the our misconceptions about Carter and the Carter presidency and all of these these positive things that you're talking about? How much of it are we have we forgotten because it gets cast in the shadow of Ronald Reagan? I think that's a great point, uh, and that um, has a lot to do with why Carter hasn't been. Uh, better regarded by history. Um, and, you know, Reagan was a great communicator. Carter was not. Um, Reagan had a sort of a uh, Hollywood patina and, and Carter um, was cool at the time he first ran. And, you know, I have a Andy Warhol uh, image of Carter on the cover of 
his very best because I was trying to convey that he was cool. And as I think uh, some people now know, he was, you know, good friends with Greg Allman and Willie Nelson and, you know, friendly with Bob Dylan. He had Dizzy Gillespie at the White House. He had a lot of sort of um, really interesting show business friendships, but nothing compared to, to Reagan and the the glamour of, of, uh, of Reagan for a lot of people. Um, and he also had a lot worse luck than Reagan, which is always a, a factor. So, but what a lot of people don't understand is that things that they attribute to Reagan were really done by Carter. So for instance, um, the B2 bomber, which more than any other weapon system intimidated, uh, the Soviet Union, it wasn't star Wars, which was, you know, far from being, anything real. It was that we had a bomber that evaded uh, radar. This was built like all of the other weapons that, you know, Reagan used to hold over the Russians. It was built in the Carter administration. Uh, And the intermediate range nuclear missiles that were important to showing firmness with, uh, with Reagan were uh, with uh, uh, Gorbachev and the Russians were put in by Carter, not, not Reagan. Uh, and as I mentioned, it was Carter who, who uh, ended inflation by appointing Volcker, not Reagan. Um, so and I could go down the list. It was Carter who uh, cut spending uh, and uh, came closer, close to balancing the budget, not Reagan. Um, and I could, I could, you know, go on all day talking about these misconceptions, but this is what this is what historians are for is to come by when all of the noise has subsided and look at the actual record. Uh, and Carter, uh, had a lot of problems with Congress. As he told me in one of our interviews, he, uh, his, you know, his biggest mistake was he didn't take care to, um, mend relations within his own party. And the challenge by Ted Kennedy from the left was very damaging to him. Uh, But nonetheless, he got through a lot of important legislation. He had more bills signed than any other president uh, since World War II, except for LBJ, and particularly in energy and the environment. And it wasn't just that he put solar panels up on the roof of the White House that Reagan took down. Uh, It was that he had 14 major pieces of environmental uh, legislation, you know, the first fuel economy standards, the first uh, support for renewable energy, the first allowance for utilities to use renewable energy, the first toxic waste cleanup, doubling in the size of the National Park Service by protecting 100 million acres in Alaska, on and on and on. And then the really tragic thing, uh, Jeff, is that if he'd been reelected, he would have addressed climate change in uh, the early 1980s. And that was one of the big shockers for me is when I learned that. As you look at it through the hindsight of history, even within his one term, what might Carter have done different that might have turned his luck around, that might have enabled him to catch a break? Well, I think there are, there are a number of things, because as I mentioned, he made a number of mistakes. Um, I think that um, he should have uh, managed his relationship with Ted Kennedy better on health care. And then they could have had a health care bill in, you know, 1978 or 79. And there's plenty of blame to go around. Kennedy was not behaving well. Uh, But 
um, ultimately it was Carter's job to manage that relationship better. And then we could have had, we could have had something equivalent to Obamacare many years earlier. And, um, it's, it's a shame for millions of Americans that we didn't same thing on, uh, tax reform. So he had proposed a big tax reform bill and then he, um, he studied it like everything else. He became an expert on it. And normally his attention to detail was, which was often ridiculed, was critically important in, in getting Camp David, Panama Canal treaties, uh, Alaska lands bill, uh, getting the hostages out that getting down into the weeds was really important, but on taxes, he, he turned himself into an expert on taxes, but didn't meet with the chairman of the, you know, Senate finance committee, Russell Long and the chairman of the, uh, the house ways and means committee, Al Ullman, and he messed up the politics. So he ended up getting no, uh, or just a tax bill that was no good and far from what the kind of tax reform that he wanted, which would have you know, gotten rid of a lot of loopholes and cleaned up the tax code and, uh, um, you know, ended what he described during the 76 campaign as a, a disgrace. And he wasn't able to do that. Same thing on welfare reform, just couldn't get it done politically. Um, so I think if he were to do it over again, he would just manage his relations with key Democrats in a different way. And I think he also um, wouldn't have fired his cabinet uh, in uh, the summer of 1979 after the famous malaise speech, which was misremembered because he never used the word malaise and actually met with a lot of uh, support. But then he followed it a few days later by asking for the resignation of all of his cabinet. He ended up firing five of them. And that was a huge political mistake. And then I think the other really big mistake was letting the Shah of Iran into the United States for medical treatment. And I tell a story for the first time, really, about how he was hoodwinked into doing that by some of Nelson Rockefeller's people. Uh, so I think those would be, those would be his, his big mistakes. From a political and a policy perspective, who did he trust? Who did he listen to? First, I want to just add one thing for clarity. The reason letting the Shah into the United States for medical attention, which he didn't need in the U.S., he could have had it in Mexico where he was, and they, they convinced him uh, that he had to let the Shah in for humanitarian reasons, which were bogus. Um, the reason that was so important is that it was only 10 days later that in retaliation for that, the hostages were seized in Iran. So there was a direct connection there. So in answer to your question, um, above all else, he trusted and continues to trust his wife, Rosalind, as his main advisor. She's an enormously formidable woman who was widely admired when he was president, and she was responsible for important policy um, achievements in her own right on mental health and uh, childhood inoculation. And um, one of the things I have in the book are his quite steamy uh, love letters to Rosalind when he was in the Navy, which are more um, explicit than any between a president and first lady that, that we know of. Um, so beyond Rosalind, um, he had enormous faith in his eventual chief of staff, Hamilton Jordan, who is a much misunderstood figure 
who died a few years ago, but I, I knew him. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do was resurrect his reputation as a political genius, which he was. Uh, and a lot of the time, Carter wouldn't take the political advice that Hamilton and Rosalind were giving him. They were better politicians than he was. He had this idea that if he just did the right thing, um, and it, that everything would turn out well and that people would realize this is a problem that engineers sometimes have. They don't understand. They arrive at the right answer why other people can't see it that way. And so that was a real problem for him. Um, and then he, you know, he, he listened to, he was actually pretty good at listening to, uh, advice and, you know, sorting through it. Um, so he had a lot of faith in his national security advisors, Big New Brzezinski, although he rejected a lot of his advice. And I think people who thought that, you know, Brzezinski was really running foreign policy were mistaken. He listened less to his secretary of state, Cyrus Vance, uh, although they, they, he told Carter told me that he agreed with Vance more often than he agreed with uh, Brzezinski he had a closer relationship with the latter. And then, um, you know, in his cabinet, it was a kind of a rotating crew, um, uh, on domestic policy. He, uh, remained close to Stuart Eisenstadt as chief domestic policy advisor who wrote a, a long book that came out a couple of years ago. Um, and for people who are, you know, interested in a lot of, uh, more details about the Carter administration as opposed to Jimmy Carter, the man. I'd recommend Stu Eisenstadt's book. Um, but I, uh, I have, uh, you know, I don't know, well over 300 pages on his presidency. <laughs> One of the other themes that runs through the book, I mean, certainly in the er- more so in the early stages of Carter's life, is the whole issue of how he approached, how he saw racial issues. Talk a little bit about that. So this to me was one of the most interesting things that I learned. Um, So um, Jimmy Carter was born in 1924 and he, he wasn't, he was born in Plains, but he population, you know, less than 500, but he actually was raised in archery uh, a few miles outside Plains that only had a handful of families and, and on a farm um, where that was in a feudal system, just one step up from slavery. And his playmates were mostly black. His um, father was a white supremacist, like most men in that area. His mother was more enlightened on race and she um, brought him to black churches and she took care of, of uh, black patients for free uh, uh, as a nurse. And, um, but in many ways he was raised by a bl- illiterate black woman, um, field hand famous for her cotton picking prowess in Rachel Clark, who, um, taught him about nature. And as I mentioned, he became one of our greatest environmental presidents and, uh, uh and helped him develop his spiritual life, which of course has been very important to him. And then when he's, um, you know, he leaves to go to the Navy and he defends a black midshipman and defends his black crewmates on, on board a submarine and quarrels with his father uh, over uh, segregation. But then, Jeff, something really interesting happens. He comes back when his father dies. He comes back to rural Georgia and 
for 18 years as he's trying to build his business and uh, make his way in local politics, he ducks the civil rights movement and really the, the kind of the white terrorism that is going on in his own backyard. And, uh, you know, we're talking uh, cattle prods on 14-year-old girls by the local sheriff who made Bull Connor look like a nice guy. And Martin Luther King called that sheriff, the county sheriff, the meanest man in the world. Um, and Carter is, this just fascinated me researching this, and, and I hope readers are as interested in it as I was writing it. Um, Carter is trying to figure out how to deal with this because he knows what the right thing is, but he doesn't do it. Um, because uh, like when, there's, for instance, there's a boycott of a racial farm, interracial farm, uh, very close to to Plains, and uh, it's run by uh, people who are suspected of being communists, but are not. And um, they're targeted by the Klan and the cake and the uh, John Birch Society. And uh, there's a boycott, and Carter observes the boycott. Um, he doesn't sell uh, products to this interracial farm. And you know, when I first saw that, I went, "Wow, that's awful." Then I see that one of his competitors, another uh, agricultural supply company that broke the boycott was dynamited. Their, their, you know, their building was uh, blown apart. It was white terrorism. So then he um, uh, runs the second time for governor of Georgia after having been a door-to-door missionary for a few weeks in 1968 and which is another fascinating chapter. Uh, he um, he runs for governor, and he runs to the right of a former governor, who's his main opposition. And uh, he never, the whole time he was in the state senate, he never bothered to meet Martin Luther King. But he does become friendly with Daddy King, who it becomes one, Martin Luther King's father, and this becomes one of the most important relationships in Carter's life. And on the day he's inaugurated as governor, there's an amazing story behind this that relates to his relationship with an eccentric pilot of his Cessna. But he uh, he ends up saying in his inaugural address, the time for racial discrimination is over. And then he he puts up Dr. King's portrait in the in the uh, state capitol. He integrates the judiciary, integrates a lot of the rest of of uh, Georgia state government, uh, he ends up being, a, you know, very, uh, he, he, he attacks the criminal justice system in Georgia and he, he basically comes out of the closet as a, an integrationist and, and strong supporter of civil rights. And the Jimmy Carter that we know today was a hero in Africa. Um, but he basically has spent the second half of his life making up for what he didn't do in the first half of his life and didn't speak up. And I think in that sense, there's a real lesson for us. It's never too late, you know, post George Floyd. Um, and, and, you know, we're all having a racial reckoning now and, and we should take a lead from Jimmy Carter, which is, you know, who said after George Floyd was killed, uh, you know, he put out a statement saying that one of the things he's learned in his long life is silence equals violence. And 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 so this, you know, not 
always hugely flattering picture of the early Jimmy Carter, never a racist, never said anything racist, but you know, ran a kind of a dog whistle campaign for governor of Georgia. This is all, I think, helped to power what he's done with the rest of his life. And along with his faith, his sense of atonement and almost guilt over not having done more on race early, I think is part of what has led to his, uh, his achievements, as a, particularly as a former president. And, and finally, Jonathan, so much has been written over the years about other political leaders, particularly other presidents that have been unceremoniously defeated after one term in particular. Talk about how Carter dealt with his defeat. So um, he, uh, you know, got a, uh, a farewell gift from the White House staff of some woodworking equipment. And so he spent a lot of time building furniture, which is quite beautiful. Rosalind took it a lot harder and, and uh, at one point, you know, she said I was bitter enough for the two of us. Jimmy was, uh, if not depressed, he was in a bad spirit, snappish. Uh, and then one night in the middle of the night, he wakes up and he realizes, you know, why don't I build a center that can try to do what I did at Camp David, bring warring parties together and, and so that's where the Carter Center came from. And um, once he got going on on building that and basically revolutionizing the post-presidency and, you know, any anybody who leaves the White House, except maybe Trump, has to deal with how the amazing things that Carter has done. But that all came through the Carter Center. And once he got going on that, then he realized that he, he had a purpose in life. He would not take any you know, speaking fees or board memberships or any of the kinds of ways that uh, other former presidents have feathered their own nest. Uh, he Instead, he's made his living as an author. He's written more than 30 books since leaving office on everything from, you know, fly fishing to uh, uh, you know, religion to he wrote a terrific book on the role of women in the world. Uh, and um, so he really is a model for how you do that. And only John Quincy Adams, who fought slavery uh, after he left the presidency, is his equal as a as a former president. And he's I think he continues to be an inspiration for us, especially in this dark time. You know, his example of decency and uh, and uh, uh, commitment uh, and honesty um, maybe can light our way back to a a better place. I certainly found when I was researching the book that he was kind of comfort food for me in a time of Trump. And I'm hoping that he can be uh, comfort food for the, the broader readership, the broader body politic, you know, um, uh, now that my book is out. Because uh, I do think he, reading about him as many challenges as he had, it, it makes you realize that we can have a decent honest president, even one who doesn't succeed in everything he tries. Jonathan Alter, the book is his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you.